This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 is a series of five events exploring how Otautahi Christchurch can achieve its climate goals. Organized by Te Butahi Centre for Architecture and City Making, each event features a range of thought-provoking speakers, from local experts providing the latest information to local businesses and residents sharing their own experiences and actions. This is the second event, called Can We Be a Zero Waste City? And due to COVID-level restrictions, it took place online. We begin with a series of presentations that get us thinking about the circular economy, emissions, and strategies to reduce waste. Dr. Jessica Halliday introduces the session. No mai hare mai, and welcome to Can We Be a Zero Waste City? the second of five events in Te Putahi's Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 series. Ko Jessica Halliday tokuungua, ko aho te kaifakahaere o Te Putahi, Centre for Architecture and City Making. I'm Jessica Halliday, the Director of Te Putahi. On behalf of the Te Putahi team, I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. This morning, I got an email from Action Station, and given the terrorist attack yesterday in Auckland, I thought I'd share some of their words with you all. To quote, as we use our people power to create a fair and flourishing future, our job is to be present with these times, to see, feel and hear them for what they are. There is no doubt that every crisis contains grief, loss, death and pain, and sometimes avoidably so. But equally, we are offered an opening a break in business as usual, a crack in the system from where we must do things differently. So thank you all for being here, for being present with these times and being willing to do things differently. The Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 series of events considers how we can meet the city's emissions reduction goals. Today's event on zero waste is essentially about opening our eyes to our relationship with stuff. Today, we'll consider material cultures and the resources we take from and return to the earth's soil, water and atmosphere, and how we can ultimately only reduce waste and its associated greenhouse gas emissions through significant cultural shifts and systemic change. There are two groups of people who have made today's event possible that we at Te Putahi would very much like to thank. Firstly, our sponsors and supporters, the Christchurch City Council, the It's Time Canterbury Climate Campaign, and our research partner, the Huritanga thread of building better homes, towns, and cities, one of the national science challenges. Secondly, we would like to thank the 20 incredible people and organizations who are speaking and contributing to today's event. A special thanks to you all for embracing the online version. It's quite a different prospect compared to being together at Tūranga. It is now my pleasure to invite our first speaker to unmute, Ailey Hilson, a Christchurch City Council Waste Minimization Officer, who will take us through what kinds of things we send to landfill in Ōtātahi Christchurch and how this creates greenhouse gas emissions. Ailey. 
Thank you for that introduction. This summary is going to cover how much waste Christchurch City generates, what sort of waste it is, where it comes from, what happens to it, and what this means in terms of greenhouse gases. So I might be a bit biased, but I think it's really fascinating to see how much waste our city generates, what it is, and what happens to it. This breakdown here is from waste in Christchurch's jurisdiction in 2019, so it is prior to some service disruptions due to COVID. However, it does give us a good idea of the proportions generated from different sources of waste. Some of you might have seen a recent press article um, around recycling bins and how many of our recycling trucks have to go to landfill due to contamination. It is important to dispel the myth that all of our recycling is going to landfill. It very much is still being processed with only three weeks um, of processing caused in 2020 due to COVID lockdown. However, for the sake of time, I'll be focusing on waste that has been categorised as waste right from the start um, today. So we can see that the total waste to landfill from our curbside weed bins and our three transfer stations was almost 114,000 tonnes. And on top of that, we have commercial waste and special waste, which make up a significant proportion of the overall waste generated by the city. Special waste um, is waste that has to be treated before it's disposed of. So things like contaminated soils, asbestos, chemicals, and medical waste. We can attribute the fact that we're performing well against other metros to the fact that Christchurch has had a three-bin system since 2009, well ahead of most other cities, some of which still do not have green bins or have only just recently got in them. And it is also important to acknowledge that there's some really amazing community-led diversion projects in Christchurch, which have gotten some of those other sources of waste down. To further determine what we're throwing out, it's really interesting to look at our last extensive waste audit, which was carried out in 2018. So this looked at waste from our transfer stations and from our red um, curbside wheelie bins. And in July and October, a proportion of waste from across the city in those trucks and from the three drop-off stations uh, was weighed and categorised. And you can see the further breakdown of these results in our Waste Minimisation Management Plan 2020. So you might note that this was before our shift in 2020 to only accepting one, two, and five plastics. However, three, four, six, and sevens did not make up a significant proportion of what we were accepting in the curbside yellow bin anyway. It was found that 30% of the total content was recyclable plastics, paper, and cardboard, and other items like glass. And then on top of that, salvageable metals, uh, which are not accepted in the curbside yellow bins, but they could have been recycled um, through scrap metal recycling systems. 10% was also found to be green matter that could have gone into the green bin uh, or dropped off at the transfer stations. So it is important to note that we do have an increase in greenery in spring. So in that October audit, we would have had an increase in green waste. And we are aware that people sometimes run out of room in their curbside green bins and they do sometimes put the excess, especially things like weeds, they might not want to put into their home compost systems into the red bin. Encouragingly, less than 1% of this was food waste. However, this still is a significant amount of food. And then we look at the 60%. So that was items that were deemed as non-divertible. And of course, that's subject to discussion. Once items have gone into a truck, gone into a pit, they could have been in a condition originally that were um, reusable. However, by that stage, they're damaged and dirty, and we just can't always really tell. So um, think as well, we have 
a lot of items that we would call multimedia materials, things that are made of a lot of different parts and components that can be really hard to reuse. So here we have an example of um, timber that is 8% of that 60%. So when you have treated timber, it can be quite hard to have a solution for it. And we are acknowledging that we don't currently have a big timber recovery program. However, if we did, then that would reduce the amount of waste that is heading in that um, landfill non-divertible pile. A lot of residents that we speak to are really interested in knowing and aren't aware of where our waste actually goes. So if you travel in the Northern Motorway and look out for some trucks, they have big blue containers on the back of them in stripes. They're heading up to Cape Valley, which is about an hour away. So as shown in this graph, this landfill is used by other territorial authorities. And prior to this, Burwood landfill was used for um, all of the post-quake demolition product um, as well. And then prior to 2005, when we started using Cape Valley. When you drop off waste, you'll see that the cost of sending to landfill has just gone up $10. This is a mandatory change around New Zealand. It's called the Waste to Landfill Levy, and that will continue going up. Um, this is to align with international waste to landfill standards, um, as New Zealand has been categorised as the 10th most wasteful developed country in the world. This money is to then be reinvested into waste minimisation infrastructure initiatives and education. Um, and you may know as well that Burwood is still accepting some materials. Um, however, your curbside wheelie bin waste is heading out to Cape Valley. A common misconception that we come across is that green waste can help a landfill to break down. So unfortunately, this isn't the case. Um, as an anaerobic or airless environment, um, there's little oxygen. You can imagine when you're piling materials on top of each other. And what actually happens is that methane gas is produced. So it can be captured. It is captured at Burwood. It is captured at Cape Valley. However, um, what we, you know, the message that we'd really like to get across is that the many processes involved in the creation and transport of stuff create significant greenhouse gases and it would be much more preferable not to create these in the first place, not to send things to landfill and not to have to capture methane in the first place, even though we do use it. Um, we use it to power council facilities, for example, um, the art gallery, the civic offices and Kiwi2 facilities. Here are some further resources which I could recommend. So I'd really encourage you to look at these. Um, these are all council um, supported or uh, produced publications, but they're really interesting and it gives you a lot more insight into what I've been talking about. This is obviously a very brief overview. Um, and I just, I think it's really fascinating. Thank you for listening. But it is time to move on. So kia ora yeah. everyone. Um, my name is Michelle Hollis and I work at Te Pūtahi. Uh, and uh, I'd like to thank Ailey again. That was um, packed full of information and she crammed absolutely as much in as she possibly could. And it's now my um, pleasure to introduce uh, Kahurangi Kata. Um, Kahurangi is a tumuhere kaiarahi um, Kahurangi, if you could please unmute. Uh, we're very much looking forward to your presentation, which is a tangata whenua understanding of the secular economy. And it's over to you. E akero kaua, no mai haere mai. Nā te aitanga, te ruku wai raua, ko ngā pākehi whakatekateka o waitaha, hangaia te huarahi o te rongo mare roa ki poutini. 
atu o te pounamu. Hei pounamu, hei pounamu, te wai pounamu. Kia ora, ko kahirangi chakurangua. Uh, ko tainui te waka, ko karioi te maunga, ko whaingaro te moana, ko waikato manipoto te iwi. Um, kia ora, yes, I am... Um, from Parakore, and at Parakore we educate and advocate for a world without waste from a Māori worldview. Um, thank you to uh, Jessica and Michelle for um, organising this wonderful corridor today. So today I'm going to be talking about uh, circular economies from a te ao Māori worldview. And so I'll talk a lot today about whakapapa. So I'm going to go back to the um, creation story, which I hope all of you have heard before. Uh, so we have Rangi and Papa here. Um, it is said that um, Rangi and Papa were locked in a loving embrace and between them was darkness. Now their children got a bit over this and it is said that Tane Mahuta, god of the forests, lay on his back and he pushed his mother and father apart. And so then came Tiao Marama the time we're living in now, the time of light. Tane, he, uh, he wanted a wife, so he went to Kurawaka and he fashioned Hineahuone from the red clay from the earth. So uh, it is said by some iwi that we are all descendants of Hineahuone and Tane, therefore we are all related to every non-living and living thing. There we go. Here we are, there's Papa Tuanuku, uh, and we are here in Ōtautahi in a perfect part of the universe. So at Parakore, we are about a return to circular economies where the concept of waste no longer exists. So what is a circular economy? Uh, you can see circles happen a lot in nature and actually Papa Tuanuku, she's about 4.6 billion years old and if you think of that timeline um, as one calendar year, we humans have only arrived right a few seconds before midnight on the 31st of December, so we're pretty new. So maybe she has something to teach us about how we should live. So when we look to nature, we see circles happening throughout nature. We see the waves on the shores. We see flowers, which are circular. We see um, the rise and fall of the sun, the seasons. These are circles. So here are some examples of uh, what circular systems mean. Composting, gardening, food, um, repairing, buying local. And another really great example is uh, harakeke. So this is our beautiful harakeke bush. Now you can um, harvest this. And this is my mother's hands in my hands. And we're weaving together um, a basket here. Uh, and here is the basket that will be used. That's not actually the same basket, but yes, here is a basket that will be used over and over. And then at the end of its life, it can go back to that same bush or another bush or into the compost, and it will become nutrients for another thing to grow. That is what we call a circular system. So 
for most of the time that Homo sapiens have been here, we have actually lived within the natural laws of the world, of the earth, adhering to the laws of the seasons, to the limits of the, the water and um, the energy around us. It's only in recent times, oh, here we go, caring for each other. Um, it's only in recent times that we've come up with our own own laws where it's a linear system of take natural resources from the earth, make them into things, use them up and send them in straight line all the way to the dump. Now, this is a system that we have inherited because of colonization and capitalism, which go hand in hand. So this system of a linear system, which we're currently living in, is not a system that we have inherited from Papatuanuku. So it's a waste of resources. Landfills are a waste of resources. They um, create toxic leachate, methane emissions, harmful to wildlife, and the list continues. Can you tell I'm speeding up? Because I know I just have a few more minutes. So what do we do? What can we do? We have a hierarchy, a waste hierarchy. So right at the top of that is to refuse, to reduce, to reuse, to repair, to repurpose. And then right down the bottom of that hierarchy is recycle. So we can see there's so many more things that we can do before we get to recycling and disposing. Of course, um, recycling, if you've got something, that's a really good step. But to recycle something takes so much energy and creates so much waste and carbon emissions. So if we can do any of these things on the top first, that is the way to go. So we've got some cool things like the product stewardship bill coming in for regulated products. So what does that mean? It means if you buy a phone and you smash it, and then instead of going to get that screen repaired, you buy a new phone, that is a linear model. If we go back and repair it, that is a circular model. And then we care about something at the end of its life. So basically, that's what product stewardship is about. Understanding where a product is going to end up at the end of its life so that it doesn't end up in that linear system. I, we can reduce our emissions. Here's my teenage son being very embarrassed at me. So we can use our bikes. You know, um, a third of New Zealand's trips are under... Um, and cars are under two kilometers. So let's use our bikes more. We're lucky in Christchurch, hey, because it's nice and flat. We can look where we can um, join collectives. So here's the Richmond Community Garden down by the Otakaro River. And you can see how many people are turning up. There's the new fungi farm they've got. And this is when they've opened their new community hub. And this is in the red zone, right? So it's coming from a place that had so much sadness and they're creating, creating um, a beautiful community. This is um, Te Pa School and Linwood who have taken responsibility for the food waste and their paper waste on their school grounds. And so this is their compost system. And this is literally the compost from January and they've just pushed it down and now they're growing food that they're going to return back and feed to their children. Of course, buy local our wonderful Littleton markets and we've got all power markets we've got lots of amazing places here that we can 
think about um, where we can buy our things from. This is my children early on Sunday morning after the big Matariki fire fireworks display at um, New Brighton, picking up rubbish um, thanks to Total Waste Solutions. We went along and enjoyed the fireworks and I made sure my children knew that they were going to be part of the cleanup the next morning. So we were able to go down and um, give back to um, Tangaroa and Hirikirikiri there. Um, I'm so sorry, Kahurangi, Arohamai. Um, Can I finish with one, yeah, one thing? Yeah, one thing, here? go for it. Um, when I was a teenager, I was really into um, theatre and music, and I heard this, this, um, this saying, the revolution shall not be televised by Jill Scott Heron. And what that meant to me was that the revolution starts in your mind. So if I ask one thing of you today, it's to go away and to think about the whakapapa of your things, the whakapapa of the land you live on, the whakapapa of the clothes you're wearing, of the food you're eating, of the oil that's in your car. Just think about the whakapapa of your stuff. Kia ora. Oh, kia ora. Thank you, Kahurangi. Um, and that was a wonderful call for people to join Kahurangi for uh, uh, an extended discussion on the whakapapa of stuff that's happening in the first breakout session. Nā mihi, Kahurangi. Um, so I'd like to now invite Sue Coots to unmute. Sue is the, ex is the Director of External Affairs at the Zero Waste Network and will outline their work on national policy and legislative uh, change. Welcome, Sue. Kia ora koutou. Ko Sue Coots I work for the Zero Waste Network. And what I love about Zero Waste is it gives me a philosophy, a destination and a toolkit. Our network is using zero waste strategies to bring the circular economy to life across Aotearoa. We have 60 plus full members, enterprises of all shapes and sizes, from one person that's just getting started to teams of 50 that have been running for 30 years. We work in two main areas, behavior change, education and engagement, and practical composting, reuse, repair, and recycling services. The zero waste network is a change-making machine Collectively, we employ 1,200 people and turn over 77 million, which goes to show that when we work together, we have the power to make a real difference. We're purpose-driven. We think global and act local, bringing big global problems like waste and climate change down to a local scale so we can do something about them. We learn by doing. We use the resources we have available in our local communities to get started. We see what happens and we use that information to guide our next steps. We share our insights and our learnings with others to enable and empower them to take action too. This includes working with government, councils, and business to reshape our operating environment so it's a better fit for us. We use our work with waste and resources as a vehicle to change our worlds. We focus on reducing emissions and slowing down flows of materials and products so that we can make the jump to a regenerative circular economy. Our end game is increasing resilience and regenerating our natural, social, and economic ecosystems. When we're reducing, composting, reusing, repairing, and recycling, we're working to protect and restore our places, connect and empower our people, and to put our, our economy in the service of people and the planet so it creates value rather than extracts it. The waste hierarchy helps us understand where best to invest our time, energy, and cash. The waste minimization 
fund is a pool of capital that's created by a levy on each tonne of rubbish going to landfill. We tax what we don't want, rubbish, so we can invest in growing what we do want, composting, reuse, repair and resource recovery services. There's a lot of great enterprises and projects already working in this space, but they're not getting the investment or the policy support they need to expand and replicate. The levy will steadily increase over the next three years, and by 2025, a quarter of a billion dollars will flow into this fund each year. We need to use this money very strategically to flip the system away from waste management towards circularity. At the moment, our energy, money and attention is focused at the bottom of the hierarchy. To make the jump, we have to refocus it at the top. Product stewardship is a way of sharing responsibility for the impacts of products and materials across their life cycles. We have a strong, well-funded supply chain and a weak, poorly funded recovery chain. To make the jump, we need to slow down the flow of stuff coming into the supply chain and create a recovery chain that harvests products and materials and feeds them back into composting, reuse, repair, and closed-loop recycling systems. Our global economy is about 9% circular now. We need to double that by 2032 if we want to stay within one and a half degrees of warming. We can achieve that by using product stewardship to build a strong, stable resource recovery chain. There is no them who's going to sort it out for us. There's only us. And we're all being challenged to change, and it's tough. We each play multiple roles in society. At work and at home in our communities, we need to understand that there are lots of different perspectives to consider. Diversity and inclusion brings us strength and opportunities. We need to use our relationships to share courage, insight, and support so we can work together more effectively. It's going to take all of us to make the jump. Can Ototahi become a zero-waste city? Yes. You're already taking some big steps together. Keep on going. All over the world, people are working together to make their places zero-waste cities and circular cities. We can learn from them and encourage one another. My top tip? Focus at the top of the hierarchy on prevention, reduction, composting, reuse and repair. High-quality closed-loop recycling is a last resort. And keep an eye out for chances to make submissions over the next few months. First on the government's emission reduction plan, and then on the new waste strategy and the review of the Waste Minimization Act. Submissions are a great chance to show our government that you really care about zero waste and zero carbon goals and to share your insights, ideas, courage and support. Ngā mihi kia koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you, Namihi Sue. Um, and on that note of working together, you will actually be able to hear more from Sue in the lobbying for change breakout session. Thank you so much. Kia ora. Uh, uh, our next speaker is Dr. Paul Smith. He's Consumer New Zealand's Product and Testing Manager. Paul, if you could unmute now, please, and uh, tell us about the campaign for a legal right to repair and what you guys call built to last. So I'm going to talk about e-waste. Um, so in Aotearoa, we create over 20 kilograms of e-waste per year each. Only about 2% of it gets recycled while the rest goes to landfill. And globally, it's the fastest growing waste stream. Essentially, making new appliances and devices uses resources that we're just not replacing. So how can we make a difference and stop adding to this e-waste problem? Well, one of the things we can do is get more life from the appliances and devices we already own. 
through our built to last project, we've asked consumers about durability and the repair of electrical appliances they've purchased that cost more than $300. So their answers relate to large whiteware and cooking appliances. These are all products that you'd expect would last a long time and could be repaired if they go wrong. We found there was a clear desire to repair faults. 28% of people told us they'd recently gotten an appliance repaired, but many people found that there were barriers to repair. Almost a third said it was hard to get spare parts. Almost half thought it was difficult to find somebody with repair expertise, and almost a third just didn't know where to start. An overwhelming 71% told us that repairs just cost too much. So this bulb's been glowing continuously in a fire station in California since 1901. It's an ongoing symbol of planned obsolescence. The first well-documented example of this happened in, 1920, in the 1920s, when a group of all the major light bulb manufacturers colluded to shorten bulb life from about 2,500 hours to about 1,000 hours, simply so they could sell more. Planned obsolescence isn't usually as blatant as those tactics, but manufacturers would rather we bought new products than repaired the ones we have. It isn't always sinister. Some of it's a result of saving costs, so products can be made down to a price. And we as consumers are partly to blame for that. We demand low prices and manufacturers only respond to us. Their actions create physical and psychological barriers that make it too costly or too much trouble to repair stuff. So we're persuaded into buying a new replacement instead. This loss of repairability has led to the right to repair movement. In 2013, Massachusetts passed a law requiring right to repair, but legislation in more than 20 other US states was stopped by intense industry lobbying. They just don't want it to happen. However, laws requiring this right to repair have recently passed in the UK, Europe and Australia. And in the US, Joe Biden raised the issue to a federal level. And this is important because we're more likely to repair stuff if repair is cheap and easy and manufacturers are going to need to be pushed to make it cheap and easy. Overseas progress will help us, but we need our own legislation too. Otherwise, we risk becoming a dumping ground for disposable products that can't be sold elsewhere. There is some legislation we have that helps. We've got a Consumer Guarantees Act that requires goods are of acceptable quality, and that includes being durable. It says manufacturers must keep spare parts and repair facilities available. That is, unless they say up front that they're not going to do that. So we think this loophole needs closing. The CGA hasn't been updated since 1993, and it's getting a bit out of touch. Even with repair, eventually we're going to need to buy something new. So when you do need to buy, choose something that will work well for a long time. Most people in our survey knew that products from some brands were more reliable. But not so many could say which brands made those more reliable products and fewer still could tell which models would be easy to repair. So without this information, how can you make a good decision? Well, you can look for brands that use durability as a selling point. Products should last much longer than the typical 12 or 24 month warranty period they get. A longer warranty shows a brand stands behind the durability of its products. And while many brands do make unrepairable products, some do a lot better, making spare parts available at a reasonable cost and providing repair advice. We'd say you should check the manufacturer's New Zealand websites before you buy. Now, if you're in France, you'd see a repair score displayed next to the price of a smartphone. It's been a legal requirement there since last year. Seems to be working. The latest Apple and Samsung phones get better scores than older models. However, smaller brands are leading the way, doing a much better job than big tech. 
In Fairphone models, you can replace the battery and screen and upgrade the cameras at home with just a screwdriver. Unfortunately, you won't see repair scores in stores here and you can't buy Fairphone models in New Zealand. So if we can't rely on manufacturers, retailers and legislators to fix our e-waste problem, what can we do? Well, I would say we can be critical of our purchases, buy only what we need and the best we can afford. Think about the long-term life. We should take pride in making the things we own last longer. And we can hold manufacturers and retailers to account, demand better from them, and we can vote with our wallets. And that's me. Oh, kia ora, Paul. Thank you so much, um, Uh We hope that has stimulated, and I'm pretty confident that has stimulated some to attend your breakout session with Alan in a few minutes. Um, and now we ask Ewen Wong to unmute, and we invite her, and we invite you all to engage a different part of yourselves and enjoy a poetry reading from Ewen, who is a first year law and science student and a published poet. Kia ora koutou, ko Ewen Toku Ingoa. Today I'll be sharing two poems with you. You may have seen that I've added a link to those poems in the chat. This is just in case you're anything like me and like to see the poem on the page and follow along as, as it's being read. So the first poem is one I wrote last year. It's about climate change, but I'll let it speak for itself. It's called The House That Saturn Built. We forget sometimes that Matariki rises, blue fuchsias on diesel clouds. There is a slow exhale of Subaru forests, sowing seeds in the night, soil of dark matter clouded humus of stars. Come Matariki, a cosmic atlas holds up the sky. Seven sisters, planet trades etched on infinite light. Saturn, god of agriculture, jaded jeweler, crafter of rings, hula hooper, arctic irrigator, center pivot around the sun. They say Ototahi is the house that Saturn built, hemmed to rubbled plains. God of agriculture laid his laurels, built a greenhouse for the foresters to stay. We forget sometimes, come Matariki dusk, humanity plants synthetic grass. Cashews loop black ribbon moons in the glass of the Milky Way. Nitrogen streams, methane clouded milk, blue turf dented with hockey sticks. Ngapunawai for the tributaries, Ngapunawai for the tributes to the facade of the house that we built. My second poem is one I wrote last week. It's about pesticides, but I chose this one because it also touches on various other topics like climate change, fast fashion, um, and yeah, uh, so it's called neonicotinoid polaroid, and I hope it gets you thinking about the interrelationships and interconnections between many of the environmental issues we face. Neonicotinoid polaroid. A hum of bees displaced from the, their pipetia hive, neonicotinoid polaroid. Aerial sprays grow cop bounties for which there are hunters longing for white pollen and bounty bars. 
Acacia goes with save the bees, teas, free shipping from Bali Express, fumigate clouds trailing beneath wings. No acacia in the greenhouse, busy taking selfies on Astrid. Hashtag pesticide free, hashtag save the bees. Tomorrow there's plastic on our teeth. Manuka petals sting of bitter tones. Map of climate on the lawn. Hole punch lettuce in the condor. Organochlorine through the tap. Catch the tears. Manuka leaves grass clippings and watch in bounty bars, taking rest on the steps of Pipitia Hive. But these bounty bars are tombstones. These cling to the podium, spilling before spelling. Their mushroom bodies may as well be Not a smackerel of honey this season. Too slow for the silent spring. Thank you. Ngamahi Nui, thank you so much, Iwen, for your beautiful poetry and also for all your amazing mahi in the environmental space as well. You're an inspiration to us all. Thank you so much. This has been part one of Can We Be a Zero Waste City? The second event in the Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 special series on how to achieve the city's 2030 climate targets. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for kindly sharing this recording. Podcasts of this series are available from the Plains FM website. Just search Christchurch Conversations.